Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Hello, everyone. I'm Sana Shahimi, the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Prevention Institute. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Sue Polis and Mike Wallace of the National League of Cities. We're going to be talking about how cities have been responding to the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of the media spotlight has mostly been on the federal government response and on, on what governors are doing. But city leaders were some of the first to take action to stop the spread of the virus in their communities. And today, they're continuing to act quickly and creatively to support their residents' public health needs and their economic and social needs as well. So big welcome to Sue and Mike. And Sue, I'm going to start with you. As the Director of Health and Wellness at the National League of Cities Institute for Youth, Education and Families, what has it most impressed you about how cities are responding to the needs of children, youth and families during this time? As you rightly pointed out, cities are on the front lines, both in their initial response to COVID-19, but also anticipating what lies ahead in terms of recovery and building the resilience of their cities. And so in this very traumatic and fast-paced environment, cities really haven't had the luxury of, you know, resting. They've had to respond to a variety of needs, everything from public safety and keeping their residents safe, using the CDC physical distancing guidelines, everything from that to trying to prevent evictions. Many cities prior to this crisis already had homelessness challenges. Those are greater now. Everything's greater now. And so our cities have had to really do this in a, in a real-time basis, consulting certainly with their state and federal policymakers. Cities are innovating. I mentioned freezes on evictions with schools closed. You know, how do you get kids their essential meals? Those certainly on free and reduced lunch, but again, greater needs now as we're seeing uh, record levels of unemployment. You know, many children receive their health care at school through their school-based health clinics, their school nurses. Where do those children go now, right? Cities are also on the front lines of making sure people know where to go for their basic needs. So food is part of that. Housing is part of that. Healthcare is, is part of that. And so that's what we're seeing cities do, being responsive to, to all of those needs and then trying to also think about emergency efforts, trying to pull together resources to support small businesses that are closing in their communities because of the virus, but will they reopen, right? And how do we ensure that we can uh, fundamentally get our cities back, uh, maintain our small businesses? This is the type of things that we're seeing cities address uh, through this crisis. Mike, as the Legislative Director for Community and Economic Development at the National League of Cities, I know you're hearing a lot from city leaders about the economic fallouts from the coronavirus pandemic, including obviously the sky-high unemployment. Can you share a little bit about what cities are doing in regards to that? Even before the pandemic became real for residents and local governments, NLC had been working with local officials really 
on um, the importance of housing stability for lots of outcomes, right? So, you know, for city residents and for local governments, you have to have housing stability to really get anyone on a track for economic mobility, to get anyone in a situation where they have good job security for their health and well-being. For local government, everything is much more expensive if it doesn't start with housing stability, and it's almost impossible to get things going in those areas. So you look at the way the pandemic has played out and the virus, it has made it much more difficult for all those areas, right? Economic mobility, job security, health and well-being. It has really upended um, a lot of progress that local governments have made on, on that front. And it's really exposed just how precarious people on the economic margins always were, always have been. For local governments, what we've been asking for is funding from the federal government to protect those folks who are on the economic margins, but also, you know, in terms of racial equity and the inequities that have persisted in, inside cities and towns, I think local governments have been making efforts to address some of those past racial equities, whether it's redlining or, you know, the home ownership gap. But I think the what we're seeing in the coronavirus that cities are concerned about, too, is that the virus itself and its health comes in, in the way that it's having a higher impact and a higher death rate for Black Americans and, and other marginalized communities. The virus really is just sort of exposing and surfacing really long-term challenges that local governments have had and figuring out a way to help local, to help their residents on the economic margins join the financial mainstream. So it is sort of looking at it from an economic point, but I mean, it really, at this point, you can't really separate the health and the economics and and the housing and what folks need. Mike, what cities are leading in their response to protect their citizens economically? There's lots of creative and innovative things happening at the local level that local leaders are responding to. I think, you know, even well before the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the administration issued sort of eviction moratoriums on properties connected to federal assistance. A lot, many cities were implementing their own sort of eviction of moratoriums, and I, and that is um, a good step because I think it's very hard to ask residents to social distance or shelter in place when they don't have shelter, right? Lots of cities were at the forefront of doing those eviction moratoriums. The challenge here, of course, is that without additional financial assistance, those eviction moratoriums could become eviction cliffs where at the end of a moratorium, you know, hundreds or thousands of families get put out of housing because they weren't making the rent payments. They were housed through the pandemic, but there are many cities for thinking ahead about how to make landlords and property owners whole or make good faith payments or do ideas where you would pay, uh, you would have 12 months to make up the difference of any missed payments due to COVID, right? So I know in Atlanta right now, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has created a new fund. I think it's called ATL Strong, but it is available for residents and philanthropies and private enterprise to make uh, donations, make contributions to the city. And those contributions will be used for providing shelter options for people experiencing homelessness and to make payments on behalf of folks who are at risk of eviction, stay stably housed in their homes. And that is the kind of forward-thinking use of, you know, a city thinking about its assets beyond just federal funding streams or local revenue, but giving their business owners and really the people who have a strong stake in the community a way to um, continue to contribute. San Francisco 
has been expanding temporary housing for domestic violence survivors and their children through public-private partnerships with real estate management companies. They've been able in San Francisco to identify and donate use of vacant units in secure locations so that households where unfortunately there are domestic violence uh, concerns that that people uh, do have alternatives that the city can help people with alternatives if they need to get out of that kind of a situation, which of course is made much more difficult by the fact that all these shelter in place orders, are, while be it necessary, uh, have lots of these sorts of unintended consequences. As of the information that we have right now, it seems that African American and Latinx communities are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. What are you seeing from the health perspective in terms of the types of actions that cities are taking to address this? Something that the National League of Cities is firmly committed to, not just during COVID, but even prior to COVID, was working with cities to address longstanding health and racial disparities. And certainly COVID has brought a whole new urgency to this issue. And so cities like Boston, with the creation of a COVID-19 Health Inequities Task Force, is designed to use real-time data and analysis, to use testing sites, working with testing sites, healthcare services for for Blacks, Latinos, Asians, and immigrant uh, populations that the task force is going to be designed to look at the data and provide a much better, not just information, but services in those communities that are being impacted at a higher level. So Boston is one example of a real-time effort. You can look at another city like St. Louis, where equity has been at the center of the COVID-19 response in St. Louis County. And so their focus is on policy outputs and longer-term efforts to really ensure that over time you can advance health equity in all communities in, in St. Louis through that lens. We see other communities tackling this as well. Las Vegas is another example of a city working to really put equity at the center of this, both in the short-term responding to uh, healthcare access and testing and treatment but also in longer term policies. You know, we know COVID is bringing this to light in a significant way, but as I said, these are longstanding disparities, not just health disparities, right? We see it in education, right? In fifth grade reading level, in uh, high school graduation rates, in unemployment rates that are now getting steeper, in access to quality, safe, affordable housing. So when folks lack that access consistently, we see the impact in both their health, their mental health, but also in their long-term well-being and life expectancies. So these are long-standing systems failures, if you will. And so in every crisis, there's an opportunity and cities are taking the mantle to address this in fundamental ways. Sue, I also know that the National League of Cities has been tracking local policy actions in response to COVID-19. Can you share with our listeners why you're gathering this information and how they might be able to use it as well? The National League of Cities, our, our charge is to support cities in good times and bad times. And certainly at this time has the value of peer-to-peer -peer learning never been more important. And so there's a variety of efforts 
underway at the National League of Cities, including an internal COVID task force, uh, putting out relevant content and materials every day through blogs and web forums and partner resources. Another way that we are doing this is through what we call our local local action tracker. This is um, an initiative that NLC has undertaken with support from Bloomberg Philanthropies. And cities can add to this in real time, but we're also adding in examples um, that we're aware of from cities across a number of issues. Some that we talked about today, health and behavioral health, certainly, but housing, education, early childhood, food access, you name it. Mike, can you share more about how cities have benefited to date from the federal government response to COVID and what cities still need in the next phase of the response? We were very pleased and supported to see the CARES Act, which is the sort of the third uh, emergency spending bill pass Congress. It included a lot of our priorities that we asked for on behalf of local governments. It had funding for housing assistance. It had community development block grant funding that cities use for residents and communities sort of on the economic margins. It included funding to keep public transit systems going because for many residents, uh, that's the only method of transit they really have access to. The bill really did provide uh, significant funding for local officials to help their residents, both protect the residents from the negative health impacts of COVID, to stabilize them, and to try to put off the worst economic outcomes where folks who have been laid off are not going to make their rent, not going to be able to make their utility payments, um, really to keep those sorts of things going. What it did not do is provide direct budget relief to local governments. So if you sort of look at what's, what's happened to date, local governments are making significant expenditures for things that, that were not budgeted, right? And they're doing it to do their part to help flatten the curve, to help their residents comply with, with these uh, extraordinary measures. So they're spending on equipment, both health equipment, but they're also spending on different ways to communicate with their residents, on different ways to engage them on public safety. And uh, that means that services that were budgeted for, things like Meals on Wheels, or it could be rehabilitation for uh, elderly residents so that they can age in place, or it could be any number of things, sort of behavioral health services too, drug treatment, all these sorts of things that cities do. Funding is probably being pulled from those priorities to meet the more immediate challenge of, of COVID. And there right now is not any sort of way to backfill that. So you're gonna have, have the definite economic impact that's gonna impact local revenues in terms of taxes. So, you know, sales tax, income tax, the, the revenue from that's going to be reduced. We know that cities have also been really good about taking steps to waive fines and fees that would exacerbate problems in the current climate. So utility shutoff fees, different sort of fines for misdemeanors that put people, you know, into a justice system that's not really built for efficiency, that would make things much harder for residents to to stay healthy and to stay apart, to maintain those social distancing guidelines. Those things have, have been waived. But those also come at an impact to the revenue that's coming in to local budgets. So what we really are asking Congress for in, in a fourth emergency spending bill, in addition to just more funding to help residents, right? So more CDBG, more housing assistance, more for, for transit and public safety and public health and clean water. We're also asking for direct budget relief for local governments so that they can continue to provide those services that right now 
the funding's been redirected for. We're also worried that we're seeing uh, local government starting to lay off uh, some of their their employees. So they're in a situation where the federal government has provided federal funds to cities to help small businesses um, maintain their employees, but cities themselves, municipal services themselves, do not have access to those funds. And so while they're helping their small businesses keep people employed and stopping uh, furloughs and layoffs, cities themselves are having to do furloughs and layoffs. And oftentimes, the last people who are to be laid off in a, in a local government would be police and fire and those sorts of services, which means people more focused on things like providing for housing, providing for economic opportunity. Those are the sort of specialists that may end up being furloughed or laid off first. And that just makes it even more difficult for local governments to sort of be innovative and creative in protecting people from economic decline. So, so that's a big piece of what we're asking for. We also sort of recognize it's going to be a long time, sort of like the last Great Recession, it's going to be a long time before local revenues come back up. When things get back to normal, we sort of had to still figure out what that normal looks like. It's certainly not going to look like the conditions that we were operating under prior to the pandemic and these extraordinary measures. It's going to be a long-term situation where cities probably don't have access to the same revenues, and there's going to have to be some sort of, of reset. But, you know, in that reset may come some opportunity for a chance for cities to think about how they've allocated resources in the past and if they've been effective at really targeting it to, to, to those most in need, to historically marginalized communities. There may be a chance after this to, driven by the need to be more efficient with the funding that's available, to really think about how to target better and get even better outcomes out of the limited resources we're going to have. So could you tell us a little bit about how cities are working together on the their corona responses? We're seeing cities pull together in a number of ways. Certainly nationally, a lot of the focus and attention is on the East Coast and West Coast cities pulling together to better formulate plans to reopen their cities and structure that with a significant lens on public health and ensuring the safety of their residents, using data to really drive that. But we also see it in communities like 24-1 outside of St. Louis, where 24 mayors have come together across their city boundaries with faith-based leaders and others to really address the real-time needs of their residents. That is a mechanism that was in place before COVID, but serving them really well on things like food access and taking care of each other as mental health needs increase. We're seeing cities grow and pull together through this, building on either existing efforts or doing it in real time to better address the needs of their residents. And Mike, I'd love to have you answer the same question, including if you're seeing cities working together across political divides mm -hmm. this time. Definitely cities are working across these jurisdictional boundaries. I think cities are working together with one another, cities and counties are, are working together, and I think cities, counties, and states are trying to figure out how to be better aligned on services. For the most part, we're fortunate that political concerns have not been at the forefront of the response at the local level. One area that we're seeing very good results of new alignments is 
because this is both a public health crisis and an economic crisis, really the uh, public health function largely resides with county governments, but policies around economic opportunity and a neighborhood revitalization, those are the municipal government sort of functions. When it comes to this crisis, it, it brings them both together in a very real way. And to talk just about um, equity a little bit more, it also comes together because it is African-American and other marginalized groups who, who have not had access to stable housing because of redlining and other policies. And a consequence of that instability is that they're also more susceptible to getting COVID-19, getting coronavirus in a way that people who are more stably housed aren't. Cities and counties are working closely together on both the protecting folks fiscally, protecting folks in a public health way, and that also presents a new opportunity to really target both of those policy goals to populations that have not really benefited from that before in the past in a, in a systematic way. We're supportive of that. That kind of effort is not inexpensive, you know, to not only do you have to, you know, perform your core functions, but it costs money to pay employees in the municipal and the county level to, to take time to do that kind of cross coordination, to share data and to be aligned on outreach. One of our fears, of course, is that that's one of those very good potentialities um, that could happen right now, but perhaps would not happen because of the need to contain costs at the local level and possibly furlough and lay off people. If federal government does not is not able to provide direct budget relief to both to municipal governments and county governments, this this is one of the the things that could go by the wayside. And that would be a huge setback and a huge missed opportunity, I think, uh, that this crisis has sort of created. So there's been a lot of focus, rightly so, on the impact that COVID-19 is having on mental health and well-being. How are cities responding to this and what are some of the resources that are being developed to help? Mental health has been a major issue in this country for a long time. Again, through COVID-19, we're certainly seeing that mental health issues are exacerbated. Many people struggling with uh, the trauma, stress, uncertainty that this brings, an increase certainly in things like domestic violence, people fleeing insecure home environments, uh, contributing to, to further homelessness. We're seeing this in a number of ways. Innovative approaches that we've seen cities take to address this are really rooted in cross-sector collaboration, using all of the assets, leveraging all of the assets within a community. So we're seeing a variety of cities working across all their assets in the community, the faith-based organizations and communities, the nonprofit organizations and communities. All of these resources need to be tapped, and we're seeing mayors really use their convening power, use their political will, um, use their bully pulpit in a way to bring all these assets together. Before we bring this conversation to a close, I'm wondering if there are any words of hope or inspiration you'd like to share with our listeners. So Sue, let's start with you. The National League of Cities is committed to working across large cities, mid-sized cities, small cities, towns and villages to continue to address these issues related to COVID, but 
in a longer term way, our focus and emphasis has been on cities of opportunity. We know uh, cities have been tested before. They will be tested again in the future. Um, and our focus is on building effective response initially, but focused on long-term recovery and building the resilience of our cities over time. And we know we can get there. Mike, any parting comments you'd like to offer? Yeah, I think what these extraordinary times have shown, sort of what we already knew is local governments, they really want to be part of the solution to these big challenges. So prior to the pandemic, NLC is working directly with dozens of cities, but also sharing this knowledge across hundreds and thousands of cities about how to be part of the solution for housing instability and ending homelessness, how to be part of the solution to make sure people have access to clean water and heating and air conditioning and and the environmental things they need to thrive. How can local governments do more to get people educated and trained for the future of the workforce? I expect that's going to continue. I think part of the reset we may be seeing in this country after this epidemic is that local leaders are going to feel more empowered to act, less willing to wait for a solution uh, to be given to them. And that could have profound impacts all for all across policy areas where local leaders are demanding some action and some change now and are demanding that the federal government be part of, of their solution that they have come to at the local level. Sue Polis and Mike Wallace of the National League of Cities, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And to all of you who are listening, I hope you and your family stay safe, stay healthy, and stay connected during these difficult times. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's prevention, I-N-S-T. 